Welcome to the Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today's text is Psalm 78. It is the second longest hymn of our Old Testament, coming in at 72 verses. It's only over or done by Psalm 119, the famously long one, which covers 176 verses. But again, this is number two of them. So Psalm 78, here's the text. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation, the glorious deeds of Yahweh and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob, and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God, and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers he performed wonders in the land of Egypt in the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea, and let them pass through it, and made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime he led them with a cloud, and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness, and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock, and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Yet they sinned still more against him. Rebelling against the Most High in the desert, they tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Therefore, when Yahweh heard he was full of wrath, a fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven, and he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he let out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings, and they ate and they were filled, for he gave them what they craved. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. 
In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe, so he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the Most High God, their Redeemer, but they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zoan. He turned their rivers to blood so that they could not drink of their streams. He sent among them the swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locust and the fruit of their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail and their flocks to thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. He struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the firstfruits of their strength, in the tents of Ham. Then he led out his people like sheep, and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety, so that they were not afraid, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. And he brought them to his holy land, to the mountain which his right hand had won, he drove out nations before them. He apportioned them for a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow. For they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath, and he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men, and their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine. And he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah. Mount Zion, which he loves, he built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth which he has founded forever. He chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people, Israel his inheritance. With upright heart he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. This is the word of the Lord. The theme of this psalm, not too difficult to pick up on. Teach your children the faith so that they don't do 
the foolish things that we have done before them so that they don't reject the Lord like we did, but instead put their hope and their trust in him because they will know what he has done and thus they will know what he has promised to do and what he will do for them. I do a lot of work in family discipleship. The idea of helping equip parents to share their faith with their children because that is the way God designed it. It is the way God made it to work in the last multiple generations now of our church body. It's not how we've done it. We live in a culture in America where parents outsource everything. Right? They outsource the, the raising of their children really to schools and daycares. They outsource the education of their children to schools. They outsource uh, even feeding their children to restaurants, fast food restaurants at that. They outsource anything and everything. There's many reasons behind that. I, I don't mean to be entirely disrespectful here to parents in general, but that is the American culture in which we live. And so over time, parents also thought we should outsource faith. The other element of that is America is a trust the experts kind of culture. Well, who's the expert on faith? Well, clearly it's the pastor. So who's going to teach my child the faith? It should, well, let's outsource it to the pastor. Sunday school, vacation Bible school, youth group confirmation class, But it's time our church body takes a hard look at itself and recognizes these things have failed us. Our children have left the church in droves. And they're not coming back anymore like they used to. It used to be that they would leave during college. But eventually after, you know, coming back, getting married, you know, somewhere in young adulthood, they would come back. It's not the case anymore. They leave and they don't come back for the most part. May we repent. May we return to the way God designed it to work. When we try to do things against God's way, it doesn't work. So the Lord teaches, the Lord instructs that the Father is to teach his faith to his children. Not America's idea, which is so prominent even among Christians, that we should let our children grow up and decide for themselves. Even among Christians we hear that. So the non-Christians, I can't possibly teach my child that. I mean, they should be able to choose when they grow up which religion they want to believe. And if, you're, if you say you're a Christian, and you say that, repent. I think the more norm among the Christian in our society is regards to baptism. The idea that I will raise my child, I'll take them to church, but as far as baptism goes, I'll, I'll let them choose to do that on their own. Just baptize your child. It's what God's given you to do. It's good. Baptism will not hurt your child. It's a gift. It's a gift with no consequence. It's a gift that creates faith. It's a gift that gives the Spirit and gives forgiveness. Just Enjoy the gift and give the good stuff to your kids.
Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. That word's used just five times in the Old Testament. Three of them in Ezekiel. The last time will be in Hosea. Utter dark sayings from of old. History's not always pretty. The things God has done for his people aren't always pretty, and you're going to see that here in this text. The crucifixion is not pretty. And yet it is good. It saves us. The resurrection, we usually assume that to look a little prettier, right? A little little more appealing to our eyes. But both are good. Very good. Things that we have heard and known our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of Yahweh. Tell our kids, share the faith, the hope that we have. Why do we believe in Jesus? Why do we do the things that we do? Why do we sacrifice? We don't sacrifice animals and things, but we sacrifice of our time. We sacrifice of our money to care for other people, to care for our congregation, to make sure that the gospel is preached in all nations. Why do we do that? Why don't we spend it on ourselves? Let's tell our children about the glorious deeds of Yahweh. The Old Testament's filled with them. But again, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ are going to be our starting point. For most of us as Christian parents, it's the basics that we want our children to know and love. But even at that, we have to keep pushing. Don't settle for the basics. Wean your children, just like you did when you were raising them at, at birth. You eventually wean them. They come off of their mother's milk and they eat solid food. I don't want to just call Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection milk, but there's there's so much more as well. God created us. God redeemed us. God has promised to give us life. He has encouraged us to build one another up in the faith, to love God, to love our neighbor, to serve one another. No greater love has one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And yes, that is what Christ did for us on Good Friday. But it's also what he calls us to do for one another now. Sacrifice of ourselves for the good of another. We have so much to pass on to our kids. So teach your faith to the children that the next generation might know them Exodus 12, Exodus 13 talk this way about the Passover and the purpose that the father would teach the meal and the history of Exodus to his children. He would speak it every year as they celebrate that feast. So when his sons grow up, they're ready to teach it to their families too. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is another prominent one where you'll read in verse 6 through 9, I believe it is, that you should teach these things to your children, whether you're sitting at home, walking along the road, lying down. Moses doesn't leave anything out. Always teach your kids. But here's the key. Okay, so they're going to teach them to the children yet unborn, which is their children after them, right? So this is generational. Verse 7, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. Too often we teach our children to set their hopes in the things of this world. 
whatever the sports goal is for them, whatever the college goal is for them, whatever the, the career goal is for them. They set their hopes on things that perish, and then they perish. Teach them to set their hope on the thing that doesn't perish. Teach them to set their hope on God himself. Verse 9, Ephraimites is a reference here to all of Israel. Uh, Ephraim being one of the descendants of Joseph. Ephraim and Manasseh, his two sons. They turned back. They did not keep God's covenant. They refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works. I mean, really, the rest of this psalm is the back and forth between God's actions and Israel's neglect. They forgot his works. They didn't trust. They didn't remember what he did in Egypt. So we're going to talk about the ten plagues. Those show up in the text too. Or in the fields of Zoan, which is a city in the northeastern part of the Nile Delta. So Egypt. They forgot that he divided the sea and let them pass through. Exodus chapter 14, the Red Sea passing. That he led them by a pillar of cloud and fire. That he split open the rocks in the wilderness. That's Exodus 17 where he, he gave them water to drink even though they were complaining about having nothing. And yet they still sinned more against him. Verse 17. They rebelled against him, tested God in their heart. Can God spread a table in the wilderness? We don't have a quote directly like that in Exodus or Numbers. But some similarities, definitely. Exodus 16, where they grumble over quail, over the lack of meat and bread to eat. So God rains down on them manna from above. Numbers chapter 11 is an account I don't think most Christians recognize any longer. Not as much as we do the the manna. In Numbers chapter 11, they they complain about the meat and God rains down quail from above. Well, blows it in with the wind. We'll, We'll talk about that one in a little bit. And they have plenty to eat, but it backfires because of their greed in verse 29. Fire was kindled against Jacob because they did not believe in God or trust in his saving power. What does it look like to trust in God's saving power today? It's a good family conversation to have. It would be a conversation around contentment. That we know that whatever the Lord gives to us is, is enough. He will care for us. He will provide. So trying to drive worry out, and we're not perfect. We'll, we'll worry. But trying to drive worry out, praying for the Lord to help us not to, to trust that he will provide, but also to save. We turn to him with our confession of sins. We turn to him to receive forgiveness in Christ that he has already won for us on the cross. So God gave them bread, manna, from heaven to eat. It's called the, the bread of angels in verse 25. And he also put winged birds like the sand of the seas in their camp. That's the one from Numbers chapter 11 that I don't think, again, most people are familiar with, at least not as much as the manna. So let me just read Numbers 11:31 and following. Then a wind from Yahweh sprang up. It brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp. About a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side around the camp. And about two cubits above the ground. The people rose all that day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. Those who gathered least had gathered ten homers. They spread them out for themselves all around the camp. 
While the meat was yet stuck between their teeth before it was consumed, the anger of Yahweh was kindled against the people, and Yahweh struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore the name of that place was called Kibroth Hatavah, because there they buried the people who had the craving. The problem is, okay, so the, the quail was piled up two cubits high. That's, I mean, that's three feet. Can you imagine piles of meat up to your waist all around you as far as the eye could see? And yet they hoarded it. That's the reason God's plague is going to come upon them in Numbers chapter 11. They gathered, the one who gathered least gathered 10 homers. A homer is 220 liters. That's 58 gallons, to use language that maybe will be more familiar to the American ear. 58 gallons, and that's one homer, not 10. Greed. They didn't trust God to provide. And so they were filled. He gave them what they craved. That's going to take us to Romans chapter 1, by the way. Romans 1 is a very difficult text about how the Lord eventually gives us over to the desires of our sinful hearts. You want your wickedness? Eventually God, after trying to call you to repent numerous times, eventually God will just let you have your wickedness. He will let you have the destruction that you long for. He gives us over. Thanks be to God for his Holy Spirit who gives us repentance. Because without that, that is where we would all be. So God's plague came against them in that time. I'm going to skip down to verse 34. When he killed them, they sought him. So God's judgment, when the Lord brings limited judgment, like a plague, for example, the purpose is not only to destroy Yes, he does bring judgment against sinners. It's what we deserve. He can rightly do this, and so he does. But at the same time, his judgments also allow for repentance. Yes, some Israelites died, but many lived. Yes, some of the Egyptians died, but many of them lived. And that's Exodus 7.5. That's the whole point of the plagues was to show the Egyptians that God alone is God. Repent of your wicked ways. Repent of your idolatry. Trust the true God. Your gods are powerless to save you. But there is a God of Israel, and he does save. Follow him. God's judgments bring repentance to the people who live. So, verse 35, they remembered that God was their rock. But they still weren't faithful. So, again, you see this go back and forth. Uh, the conversation here in verse 38, he being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity, did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. As a family, it is worth talking about what would happen if God did not restrain his anger and his wrath against us, against the world. Uh, we would be destroyed. And this is, again, what we deserve because of our sin, but thanks be to God, it is not what we receive because of Christ. They rebelled against him in the wilderness often. That's Numbers chapter 14, where God will say these ten times that they have grumbled against him. That's a number for completeness. We get a list of some of the plagues 
Maybe you can have your kids help you number them. Remember the ten plagues in order and see which plagues show up here. So we've got verse 44, rivers turning to blood. That's the first plague. Then you've got the swarms of flies is fourth. And then the frogs was second. Then the destroying locust is eighth. And then the hail is seventh. He let loose on them his burning anger and a company of destroying angels. did not spare them from death, but gave them over to the plague, struck down the firstborn in Egypt. That's the tenth and final plague. And then the tents of Ham are mentioned. Ham was one of Noah's sons. His children, his descendants after him, would settle both to the southwest into northern and eastern Africa, but also off to the east into uh, central and, and northern Arabia. If you're curious, Shem's descendants are going to settle to the east, and also into southern Arabia, and then Japheth's descendants descendants are going to move north and also westward towards Europe. Anyway, he led his people out like sheep, guided them in the wilderness like a flock. Psalm 23 comes to mind. John 10, Jesus is the good shepherd, also comes to mind. The sea overwhelmed their enemies. They did not need to fear. He brought them into his holy land, a reference to Joshua and driving out all the enemies before them. His right hand had won. That's a picture of victory. The right hand is the sword arm to strike. To the mountain he had won. Jerusalem, where his temple would be built, where they would dwell with him forever. Or at least they were supposed to, but they continued to rebel. So, it's verse 56. The rebellion continues. They're like a deceitful bow twisted. That bow would be worthless. You go to fire it and it twists on you. That, bo- that arrow is not going to shoot anywhere like what you want it to. They're full of idols, false gods. They worship in high places right, to the gods of various other people, other tribes, other nations. So he forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, a reference to the tabernacle. Tabernacle stayed there for centuries after they'd settled in Israel in the Promised Land. We don't know exactly when it shows up in Shiloh, but it's there all the way until the time of King David, basically, when the Philistines will capture it. God delivered his people over to captivity. This is a reference to the book of Judges. He delivers them up. He allows them to be destroyed and oppressed. And then after a season, when they repent, he comes and saves them. This is Judges. And it's a cycle again and again and again. He gives them peace. They reject him. They sin against him. He allows them to be oppressed. They're oppressed. Eventually they cry out. He delivers them. They have a period of peace and so forth. But he chose the tribe of Judah. Mount Zion, which he loves. Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Built his sanctuary like the high heavens. The original temple built by Solomon At its high point stood 120 cubits tall. That's 180 feet. In the ancient world, that's a very tall building, stretching to the heavens. I mean, the heavens in in Hebrew is just a word for the skies above. It can mean more, but that's the original meaning. God chose David, took him from among the sheepfolds. He was a shepherd boy to shepherd instead his people. This is just like Jesus going and finding fishermen and making them fishers of men to lead his people. And so with upright heart, 
David shepherded them and guide them with a skillful hand, a foreshadowing of Jesus, the descendant who would come from David's line, who would be our good shepherd and care for us and guide us. Again, Psalm 23, he leads us beside still waters. He restoreth my soul. May the Lord God help us to faithfully teach our faith to our children in our homes. As we go about our day, as we walk through our town, as we drive through our town, may we be teaching them about Christ always. May we teach them to love God and to love their neighbor, to serve others in this place. May they know Christ and him crucified and risen again today, tomorrow, and every day for the rest of their lives in this place that we may one day see them again in paradise together singing the praises of Christ forevermore.